Have you seen what this new technology is doing to our society? That sounds like a fairly recent complaint. What if I told you that this actually started before Christ? That this statement was made by a playwright, a Greek playwright named Plautus, and he was in 200 BC complaining and putting his anger into prose when he wrote this, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish ours. Confound him too, who is this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small proportions. I have no idea why I think Plautus somehow sounds like a pirate, but in my mind he does. And he is ticked off this new technology called the sundial. This has messed up his life. This has subdivided his day in ways that are not natural. He is just like us complaining about this new technology that has somehow divided our life and our attention. As I was listening to a long-form podcast by a Stanford brain researcher, he talks about optimum work, and that as you do optimum work, you're looking at about a 90-minute cycle of attention. That if you can have 90 minutes of uninterrupted time, you, have, you increase and you have like maximum productivity, and then you need to take a break. By the way, the sleep cycles are the same way. We'll talk about that later in the series. 90 minutes. But 90 minutes sessions of uninterrupted work, how often do you get interrupted? Do you know that when you get a notification or a ping or whatever on your, on your email, it takes on average 20 minutes to recover your attention after that interruption? Whew, it's amazing that we ever get anything done. Talk about dividing our time so wretchedly into small proportions. Now, while I want to minimize distractions at work and be more productive, it's more crucial to my soul to understand the distractions that affect me spiritually. Ronald Rawlheiser, his Catholic writer, uh, writes this. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. He goes on to say this, it is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. He finishes this way, we are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life that they produce in us than we are in church or spirituality. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. 
sometimes it has to do with how we're distracted. And while this can be a really helpful tool, it can also really distract us from our sole pursuit of God. Survey from Microsoft found that 77% of young adults answered yes when reading, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. I think that stat's probably low. And I don't think it's just young adults. Those of us who are not young adults anymore still tend to do that. The big, the big tech companies, this is, this is not new news, are paying millions of dollars to get and keep your attention. To divide your time into small, wretched, small bits. If you've watched documentaries that are terrifying like The Social Dilemma, you'll know that they're trying to get us addicted to the dopamine hit in your brain that you get when it goes bing or it goes brrrr. And it's feeding something that has been termed now FOMO, the fear of missing out. Oh no, I gotta make sure that I might miss someone's picture of their dinner. <laughs> Bless your hearts if you post things that you're eating. Golly. Economists call this the attention economy because these big tech companies are coming for your attention. One author called it an arms race for people's attention. It's causing our attention span to be less and less. Now, the statistics, I don't, I don't know that I can get exact data, but the data that Microsoft is pushing out, and love or hate Microsoft, they're just a big company. In 2000, before the digital revolution, it was supposedly our attention span was 12 seconds. Since then, it's dropped to eight seconds. And maybe you've heard this, that... Goldfish have the attention span of nine section, seconds, which means that we're losing to goldfish. Now, whether you buy this stat or not, I think everyone universally agrees that because our time continues to be divided up into very small bits, our attention span is lessening. I've definitely found that research to be true across the board. Microsoft researcher Linda Stone said, continuous Partial atten attention, that term is continuous partial attention, is our new normal. We're just going to accept it. We're never going to get to focus anymore. We're never going to be fully present. <clears throat> I'm here to tell you, this is not Jesus' life to the fullest. So the new normal is being distracted and having your, your mind divided. Where is the one place that Jesus can still get your attention? The shower. Until your devices become waterproof, which will be the end of the world as we know it. The shower, I don't know about you, but oftentimes that's where Jesus gets my attention the most. You're like, you're like soaping up and you're like, oh. There's no one in there with me. But all of a sudden things begin to dawn on me. And I begin to have thoughts. Why? Because it's the only place where there's no noise, no distraction, there's nothing going on. Even if my phone rings, I can't hear it. <laughs> Driving 
if all of your devices are off, and sometimes driving is also the other place where Jesus really encounters me. Or right when you're waking up, he loves to get your attention then because you're not doing anything else. The shower is not a sacred place. It's a place where you're still. So what does the Bible say about this? Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still, he tells his people. This is about trust, right? Trusting God. You can be still because you can trust me. Stillness, I believe, is equivalent to the amount of trust you have. You can be still longer and more if you're trusting God more. I mean, I think that they're equivalent, right? Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. When everything seems to be going against you, you don't have to panic. You can wait on God. This is what we opened our service with this morning. Waiting on God, finding and taking heart and finding strength in that. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is who I am. Therefore, you can be still. And lastly, what the King James, how the King James interprets or translates the Hebrew in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 13. Elijah hears the still, small voice of God. And in NIV, it's his whisper. So God's calling us to be still and present. Present to ourselves, present with him, present with others. And that requires disciplines and effort in our mind and our bodies. We're going through this series that I have labeled Unforced Rhythms of Grace. It could be the most important series I've ever taught through. It's a series that's not all planned out. It's a series that week by week I'm just asking, Jesus, what do you have? I have no problem standing up here talking for hours and hours. But it's saying, Jesus, what is it that you have for us right now? And I believe this is exactly where we are as a culture and as a people. And so just to review, these last three weeks... We've talked about rest, we've talked about imitating Jesus, and we've talked about slowing. The first week, we talked about the fact that God has promised us rest. From Psalm 23, we talked about that. But it's a continual faith walk. That it's not just belly deep alpha alpha. It's these little sprigs of grass that the shepherd would lead his sheep to green pastures, but would have to trust him along the way. A little bite here and wait and trust the good shepherd, and then a little bite here And that's the way it was, leading your flocks in Israel. That it's a faith walk, but we're invited into rest. The second week we talked about imitating Jesus, but his easy yoke is not just about what he teaches, what he says Torah is about and how to live out Torah in your life, but it's actually imitating his pace, which is what this idea of these rhythms, learning his rhythms is all about. And then last week we talked about our first posture, That posture of slowing, or what Richard Foster would call the spiritual discipline of slowing. That you would intentionally resist the speed of culture, which is not healthy and not human. And you would 
choose purposely to wait. You would even put yourself in positions where you would learn how to wait. You would learn how to trust in the midst of even your enemies triumphing in your presence. In this fourth installment, we're going to talk about a rhythm of engagement. Last week, we talked about a rhythm of resistance. This week, we talk about a rhythm of engagement, something to engage. And this is a rhythm of Jesus that we can imitate. We're going to see that Jesus sets an example for us in drawing a way to be with God alone. It's a regular rhythm that we can imitate that he lived out. I'm going to challenge you to move away from an emphasis on doing to an emphasis on being. And for those of you who like to make a list at the end, I'll give you a couple ideas on how to do it. Okay, speaking of doing, anybody make any New Year's resolutions this year? Last year, 55% of people gave up prior to February. 80% gave up prior to February 7th. The prediction according to what happened last year, is that the 19th of January, 50% of people will quit, which makes the 19th, they, they have labeled it Quitter's Day. You got three more days till Quitter's Day. When I think about resolutions, I think about goals. And I think goals can be really helpful. I set goals all the time, especially at work. But I'm beginning to understand that even though goals could be a helpful tool, formation is more important. What do I mean by that? Well, I got a chart for you. Of course I do. Okay, goals. The focus is the finish line. Doing something. They're activity-oriented. They're results-oriented. They have a linear approach. Formation. This is what we're talking about with these rhythms. It's aiding our formation. It's getting into habits, things that are repeated, that become second nature. But they they, they, it, you're forced to use the front, front end of your brain to be able to learn these things. So the focus is being, not doing. We're becoming someone. Formation is about your identity and shaping your identity. It's a process. This process-oriented, not ends-oriented or results-oriented. And it has a circular approach. You end up doing Many of the same things again and again and again. And we're being shaped by God constantly. And he uses people, events, and circumstances in our life to do that. But the patterns and the habits and the rituals of repeated activities that we choose will also shape our identity. What we choose will shape us, and God will use that. Here's an example, running, right? So once upon a time, I set a goal. I said, I want to run a half marathon. I had never run more than about six or seven miles at any one time. So I thought, I can do this. And so I set up a goal that I was going to run a marathon in San Francisco on, on November, whatever it was. And, and so I began to train, and I made a little chart, and I talked to a friend who did uh, nutrition, and I figured out how to eat and what to do, and I, and I trained, and I trained, and I trained, and I finally got up to the point where I was running about almost 12 miles, and then I said, okay, I can do this, and then I ran my 13.1 miles, and I finished the race, 
right? That's a goal that I set, and I accomplished the goal. After that, I don't know, I kind of felt like, oh, that was cool, but now what? I, sure, I could have set another goal. In fact, I did set another goal. I ran a second one to be able to break that two-hour mark, and I barely, I barely did it. And then I stopped running, largely. Why? Because I wasn't becoming a runner. I was just running a race. Does that make sense? But what would it look like if I said, I want to be a runner. I want it to be a part of my lifestyle. Therefore, I'm going to say I'm going to run at least five minutes per time for four days a week. I don't know. You set, up, set a goal, Right? And this is going to be a part of my rhythm. And this is what I want to become. Not just I want to wear the clothes and pretend like I'm a runner, but I want to actually begin behaving my way into this. So Jefferson Bethke says this. What forms our identities are the million tiny micro-sized actions we do every day without realizing it or thinking twice about it. We are the sum of our habits. And if you're like me right now, you are scared to death. There are good habits that we can engage in that will shape who we're, who we're becoming. So habit is less about doing something and more about loving something. Like, wait, 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 habits and loving? Well, let me show you these definitions. These are just my definitions, by the way. They're not perfect. So you have the word routine. This is uh, like tying your shoes. It's unvarying. It, it's usually the same. It's mundane. I don't think about tying my shoes. I just do it. I don't love it. I just do it. Then there's habits. It's the usual way of behaving. It's a repeated action that's really difficult to give up or change. And habits can be good. And as you know, habits can be bad. Habits are difficult to change. They're also different, difficult to create. The stats that I read is the average person takes 66 days to build a habit, not 21. That's why you're really frustrated after a month. You're like, why is this not second nature yet? And as we're working on building a habit, once it becomes a habit and moves from our cerebral cortex in the front, and it takes a lot of effort to do it, and it moves then back to your cerebellum where you are then doing it second nature. doesn't take as much energy. So, for instance, I decided to start flossing my teeth. And it's been about uh, almost 66 days. I've only missed a couple nights. I've been kind to myself when I've missed. I mentioned this at the end of the message last week. I don't know how many of you heard that. That I decided to start flossing, well, because it's the right thing to do, and I want to care for my teeth and not have my teeth rot out and have it cost a lot of money and a lot of pain. But I also believed that if I built a good habit and had some discipline in one area of my life, it would begin to flow over to others. Guess what? It's entirely happened. Now I want to floss my teeth. Can you believe that? Even my dentist was texting me last night or last week after the message. They're so proud of me, by the way. Um, and I said, you know what, can... Can we get some flosses for this next week? They said, absolutely. So they provided some flosses. If you worked on slowing this week, stand up. If you worked on this posture of slowing, this came across your mind, stand up. Not if you floss, but if you worked on, okay. So um, yeah, Veronica has some flosses. He, she's going to toss out some floss there for you. Here you go, Randy. Um, 
This is just one of these pictures, one of these reminders that as we work on building habits, you know what will start happening is you'll start craving it, right? Even as you start exercising again, your body will start craving exercise. But it takes a while of your effort. And then all of a sudden, you're going to want to love it. There's that, the habits have this, this is what I want to do. Then there's rituals, last term. Uh, ritual is, is what one author called a habit of meaning. It's an action that brings us into a sacred moment. Let me give you an example. I love the fact that Bob Duke, every birthday I'm with, at some point in the birthday celebration, he goes, we got to stop. We need to speak blessings and pray over this person. That is a habit that has become a ritual. I love that about you, Bob. All of a sudden, it brings us into a sacred moment. And it doesn't have to be super serious. It could be fun. It could be filled with joy. All of a sudden, we, we want to make rituals into something that's negative. Wait, 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 wait. Are you trying to make us legalistic? Are you trying to make us Pharisees? I read one author who said, for too long we've confused legalism with something that takes effort and discipline. We've confused the two. Just because we have a repeated pattern of doing something doesn't mean it's legalistic. By the way, I, I read last week where some biblical scholars believe that Jesus was a Pharisee because theologically he fits best with the Pharisaical tradition. I don't know if it's true or not, but it would make a lot of sense if he has his most harsh harsh condemnation for the Pharisees if he was actually one of them. Food for thought. So, what am I seeing? After all of that, we're invited into these rhythms that become powerful things that we love that can help us behave our way into a much more healthy, beautiful, abundant life. Where do we see it in Jesus' life? I'm going to take you to a couple places in the Gospels. Luke 5, verse 15. The news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Great! There's crowds! But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So what's Jesus' response to a whole bunch of people showing up? Oh, cue. Time for me to exit stage left and have some solo time with my heavenly father. He goes to lonely places. This is eremos. This is one of the first Greek words I learned in seminary. It just means wilderness, but it also mean, can mean desert, deserted place, desolate place, solitary place, lonely place. My favorite translation is quiet place. And I think Jesus, being at the Sea of Galilee at this point, probably didn't go to the desert He's just going to the hillside. He's going by the lakeside. He's going to a quiet place. Jesus withdraws alone in this way in the book of Luke nine times. I think it's safe to say that that's a pattern. So, a couple examples. Matthew 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, this is the beginning of his ministry, he went up out of the water, 
And at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Man, this is like the emotional mountaintop experience to beat every other one in the history of the world. This is the launch pad from which Jesus is sent out into the world. The Messiah, he starts his ministry. And the very next verse. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the Eremos, the desert, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does is leads him to the desert. What? But this is the Eremos. It's not necessarily just hot and sandy. It's the quiet place. It's the solitary place, but he wasn't alone. Jesus is spending time with his father. And then he's tempted by the devil. If you've been reading the Bible since the beginning to Genesis, you know that Jesus has to go toe-to-toe with Satan. He's got to defeat He's got to defeat this foe. So he's been on a collision course for this all along. Evil has to be defeated. But why alone? Why not with the support of his, of his disciples or friends or someone? Why fasting for 40 days? This makes no sense because I saw the Eremos as a place of weakness. I thought it's just like the devil to try to take advantage of Jesus like that when he was all weak. He hadn't been eating. I get all hangry when I get like that. I'm now learning this. The wilderness isn't a place of weakness. It's actually the quiet place, which is the place of most strength. The Heavenly Father knew that Jesus needed that much strength to fend off the devil. Therefore, he gave him all that time of building in, pouring in. And only after six weeks of fasting and meeting with God is Jesus most ready to be successful in this temptation. By the way, that's why Jesus keeps going back to the quiet place. Mark 1, if you've been reading the book of Mark with us this month, you still have time. It's only 16 chapters. From the, it's the first day on the job for the Messiah. So he, he walks out of the wilderness after defeating the enemy by saying no to all of his temptation. First job, first day on the job. Here's the summary. He gets up early. He's teaching in the synagogue. He does deliverance in the middle of his teaching. That's a little bit training, by the way. Um, he, healy, he heals Peter's mother-in-law while he's at their house over lunch. Uh, then he's up late into the night healing the whole town coming to the house. If there's ever a day, the next day to hit snooze, it's that day, right? Give me a scr- you know, scrambled eggs and like toast, some coffee. Let me have a slow like getting up, kind of recovering what does Jesus do? Here's Jesus's rhythm. Mark 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to the Aramos, a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus knows that if I need the clarity and the strength to be able to do what I'm going to do, I've got to go back to this quiet place. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. 
Jesus replied, oh, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. I'm imagining Jesus along the shore of the lake. And he's praying and he's spending time with his father in stillness. But Jesus goes back to the quiet place. After a month of half of being there, he comes back to Capernaum for one day of ministry and he goes right straight back to a quiet place. This is a life rhythm for Jesus. It's where his identity is reaffirmed. His calling is confirmed and his strength is replenished. It's where he goes to get direction for his next steps to hear his father instead of taking a poll of what the disciples wanted. So in verse 36, Peter and the guys are frantically trying to find him because the line has already formed at the house. I mean, dude, the network TV guys are here with the trucks. Our PR guy, Bartholomew, he's freaking out. Peter's mother-in-law was already interviewed on Good Morning Israel, and, and we need to get back to this thing. So here are the demands that we can relate to. Everybody wants you to fill in the blank. Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. It's code for Jesus saying no. Because Jesus has spent time in the quiet place. He's carrying all kinds of clarity about his identity, his calling. And from that place of being loved by God, he knows precisely what to say yes to and what, and more importantly, what to say no to. And he's saying no to some amazing opportunities for ministry. He knows how to say no to the good, to say yes to the best, because he was with his father. How much do we need that same clarity? So much stress in our lives, if you're like me these days, is because we're looking for consensus, opinion on what we should do next, instead of hearing from our Father and resting in that. The very most important thing that we can do in this crazy season of our world is hear from our Father. And the best place to do that is in the quiet place. Confirmation from others is really helpful. Hearing from God is necessary. Let's look at one more place where Jesus drew away. Mark 6. Same, same MO, the, uh, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. It was busy. There was a lot going on. Then, because so many people were coming and going, and they did not even have a chance to eat... You ever do that? You just work right straight through lunch. He said to them, come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place, to the Aremos, and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Look at Jesus having a plan. Sticking to the plan. Staff retreat. Great job, guys. These guys probably wanted to have a really good meal, watch a movie, maybe get a watch a great football game, maybe their idea of recharging. Jesus says, no, what you really need is you need time alone with me. But to do that, we got to get away from the noise and the people. So the Galilee spa with the mint organic tea, that's out. We got to get away and get filled up. If you joined us last week for this idea of the posture of slowing, 
and being willing to be interrupted, you'll relate now to what Jesus happens in the next, this next verse. Verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them. It's Jesus! And ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It's a lake. You can see them like he's, they're, they're like, they're sailing across. These guys are like running to like get to the other side. Okay. All right, great. So Jesus is going to show us how to set up a boundary to protect time with him. This is going to be great. This is going to be cool. Nope. Verse 34, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place. This is the Eremos. He said, it's already very late. What are we doing? Jesus, what happened to our staff retreat? This is real life. Jesus makes a plan and life happens. Sounds like my life. And there are times when we really need to get away to the quiet place with Jesus and it doesn't happen. There's another minor crisis at work. The toilet overflows. Your toddler swallows a mini Lego man. You find out how long the wait for the emergency room is. A friend sends you a text message letting you know how they've been exposed to the coronavirus. Your, your roommate has had a bad day and, and you start talking to them and two hours later, they're still crying. Life happens even to Jesus. Remember this from last week. Jesus walked slowly because he knew that what others had labeled earthly interruptions often were invitations into divine appointments. Jesus sees this opportunity and instead of sending everyone away, he has everyone sit down and he feeds 5,000. And if you look at it, it's probably more like 10,000 because they only somehow counted men. I have no idea why. With five loaves and two fish. If Jesus doesn't respond to this interruption, we never have this story, this account. And after the miracles, what does Jesus do? He's resolute. He has no problem getting back on task. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, what did Jesus do? He went up on a mountainside to pray. There's going to be moments where you have in your mind you're going to meet with Jesus and it's all going to go sideways. No problem. Be kind to yourself. You look for the next opportunity. You be resolute and you plug back in. We all will get distracted by all sorts of things in this life. Jesus shows us it's okay. And that sometimes those interruptions are actually God's invitation to a divine appointment. We'll talk more about this posture of solitude and silence later in the series, but let me relay this quote from Richard Foster, because I think it's helpful, because sometimes spending time by yourself sounds scary. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Why? Because when you think about the wilderness, unlike the way that I thought about it, the wilderness doesn't, isn't a place of weakness. It's actually a place of strength. In solitude, we are anything but alone. But it's, it's where we 
most get connected to God. So, finishing up. What could a daily rhythm of meeting with God look like? Because I do think this is a daily rhythm. I don't think it's a weekly rhythm. I don't think it's a monthly rhythm. I think it's a daily rhythm. So what could it look like? Well, I think finding a quiet place where you're alone is, is job one. Sometimes you've got to be creative with that. Number two, listening in your posture of prayer. That you don't just pray and fill the air, but you pray and you listen and then you pray some more. And then interacting with his word. So, list people, here you go. Here's six ideas. First of all, um, I looked at Richard Foster's Seven Minutes with God. He has this little pamphlet that talks about seven minutes with God. How could you do seven minutes with God? Uh, Foster says this, have a brief prayer for guidance. Jesus, help, come meet me. I just invite you, Holy Spirit, come and fill me. And then read the Bible for a few minutes. And then pray. And his suggestion is to use the A-C-T-S, Acts, alliteration, adoration. God, you're so good. You're my provider. I love you. Adoration, right? Confession. Jesus, help. I just confess that I'm blowing it in this area. Would you just forgive me? Help, just strengthen me. Give me what I need. Thanksgiving. I'm so thankful, Jesus, for this, for this, 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 this. Oh, by the way, I've got a short list for my friend, for my friend, for this, and for myself. Supplication. So that's seven minutes with God. That's one way to do it. Here's some other quiet time ideas real quickly. Our Daily Bread has uh, stuff online now. It used to be just a little booklet. I'm sure it still is a little booklet. But they actually have an audio thing where it like reads it to you. You could read it as well, but kind of cool. Bible Project has some new Bible studies that look really amazing, and I love their stuff. So that I, would, I highly recommend Bible Project. Uh, on my phone, ding, this morning early said, The Chosen has a new 40-day devotional. And I really like their stuff. That's out there if you're a Chosen fan. Uh, boot camp Bible studies. You might want to do spiritual boot camp. Now, some of you are completely afraid that this is going to be, you're going to be set up to fail. So here's the deal. I printed off a couple days worth of boot camp devotionals, and they're down here down front and also at the red table. And at the end, I'll invite you to come and grab it and do it this week and see that this is not rocket science and you can actually do it. All it is is a few verses to study, a few things to pray about, and some action items, some ideas. So those are there for you. Um, and then lastly, what I've been doing is I've been listening to the Bible. So I am now into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm into Numbers. Whew. Man, there's some spots in Leviticus and Numbers you just got to keep on. You just got to like love Jesus enough to get through. But, um, but I'm here to tell you all I've been doing is sitting in my blue chair burning wood in the fireplace, and listening to the Bible. And I've been spending about 20 to 30 minutes a day doing that. That might sound like a lot of time to you. It's not, it doesn't mean I'm super spiritual. It just means that I've been disciplined to try to carve out that time. And then I pray. That's all I'm doing. I'm not studying Greek words during that time. I'm not reading 14 books. I'm just listening to the Bible and asking the Lord to show me things. We make quiet time with God way too difficult. So, if you'd stand, if you're here in the house, I'd love to pray for us that we could learn how to engage in this rhythm. Prayer folks, if you'd come down forward.
meeting with God every day. This is, this is a worthwhile challenge to take on. Not a goal to say, I'm going to do X amount of days in a row. If you set a goal like that, after the goal is done, you, you, you'll, you'll end up waning. But if you say, I want to I become someone, I want to be someone who meets with God on a regular basis. And I'm going to shoot for once a day. And I'm going to be so kind to myself when something gets in the way, kind of like it did in Mark 6 for Jesus. And I'm going to re-engage when I get a chance. So Jesus, thank you that you showed us this rhythm that's so simple, but we've missed it. For so many of us, we've missed it. So help us to step into a place of meeting with you every day, to receive that clarity for our calling, to affirm our identity, and to be able to get the strength that we need to move forward. Thank you for our church family. I pray a blessing on us that we would become increasingly more and more guarded in our pacing. We would make room for you. We would make room for those divine interruptions. And you'd lead us into a place of life to the fullest. Thank you for these rhythms that you showed us, Jesus. Help us to step into them in the power of the Holy Spirit, not trying to work harder, but really surrendering more in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you next week.